He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Those are the words of a man called Jim Elliot. I'm not sure if they are original to him, but the truth behind these words is certainly not original to Jim Elliot. This is a truth Jesus wants his church to get hold of. We're going to see that in the passage that we'll look at this morning. But first, let's remind ourselves where we are in the book of Revelation. Last week, we began looking at Jesus' words to the seven churches. We said these seven messages are really seven calls to war. The book of Revelation is about war between God and all that opposes God. And these messages call the church to participate in the war. The purpose of the messages is to show each church their particular battlefield. The area where they are called particularly to overcome and be victorious. So as we go through this book and hear about dragons and beasts and nations gathering for war, we mustn't think this book is removed from our own daily lives. In these opening chapters, we're told the way we live at home and at work At school, it matters. It is part of something much, much bigger. The way you and I join in the big battle against the dragons and the beasts is with our daily lives. As we fight against sin in our lives. As we keep struggling on to honor God with our lives. And obey his commands and put him first in our lives. And last week we saw the church in Ephesus was shown their battlefield. It was the lovelessness in their own hearts. That's where they're to go to war. That's their front line. As they conquer their own hard hearts, they will be playing a part in God's victory. And this morning we come to Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna. What is their personalized call to war? Jesus' challenge to them is, choose your treasure. Turn with me, if you haven't already, turn there to Revelation chapter 2. It's page 1234, and in the large print, 1914. And I'm going to read from verse 8 down to verse 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is God's word. As Jesus speaks to this church, he's raising two questions. Which riches do you want most? And which life do you want most? First of all, which riches do you want most? Of the seven churches Jesus speaks to, there are only two where he has nothing negative to say. Smyrna is the first of those two. And it's interesting to notice, one of those two churches is poor in terms of material wealth. And the other one is small numerically. Now that doesn't mean being poor or small automatically means Jesus is pleased with you. Not at all. But it is worth noticing, churches that look most pathetic to our human eyes may be the ones Jesus is most pleased with. And the ones we try to copy, because they've got super buildings and lots of people, might be close to being shut down by Jesus. They might be in life support as far as he's concerned. Jesus judges by different criteria than the criteria you and I often use. Taken by themselves, a church's material wealth and a church's size are irrelevant to Jesus. He is interested in other things. And so he can speak to a church in poverty like Smyrna and say, I know your poverty, yet you're rich. How can the same group of people be poor and yet rich at the same time? Well, clearly Jesus has two kinds of riches in mind here. The believers in Smyrna have no money, at least not much but they have another kind of wealth. And the New Testament records other words of Jesus that show us what he means by riches here. We read some of them earlier in the service. Remember the man who found treasure in a field and sold all he had to buy it. And the merchant who found the great pearl and sold all he had to get it. Jesus said, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's worth losing everything else to get it. Then remember Jesus' words about storing up treasure in heaven instead of on earth. And his question, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? When Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, you are rich, He's talking about eternal riches. Eternal riches that we can begin to enjoy now. Peace with God. Fellowship with God. Jesus wants these believers to see the eternal riches they do have far outweigh the short-term riches they don't have. So now we know Jesus is talking about two kinds of wealth. 
we can go on to ask, is there any particular reason the church in Smyrna is poor in terms of material wealth? Is it just because of the area they happen to live in? Is there no work to be found in Smyrna? Or are they just a lazy bunch of people? Is that the cause of their poverty? Actually, their poverty doesn't seem to come from either of those reasons. A little background will help us see why they're financially poor. The church in the first century lived in a world ruled by Rome. And by this point in time, the Roman emperor, Caesar, was worshipped as divine. He had declared himself to be divine. Well, how did that affect ordinary people? It meant people all across the Roman Empire were required to offer incense to the emperor. And when they did that, it was about more than just respect. It was understood to be worshipped. And there was only one exception to that rule. The Jews were given an exemption from offering incense to the emperor. They were the only ones. And if we ask why that was, well, the Romans believed in many gods. They were comfortable worshipping many gods. But the Jews were pretty adamant there was only one. And on several occasions... They had staged very messy, bloody rebellions against Rome. Now, of course, they had been defeated. But on the way to defeat, they had given the Romans a whole lot of hassle. So by this point in time, Rome had decided to leave the Jews alone as much as possible. Within Israel, they could pretty much operate by their own laws so long as they continued to pay their taxes to Rome, so long as they didn't make much of a nuisance of themselves. And part of the arrangement was they weren't forced to worship Caesar the way everyone else was. The Jewish leaders knew they were pretty fortunate to get that kind of deal. But they knew too it was precarious. If they started getting out of hand, Rome would come and crack down on them again. We see that as we read through the New Testament Gospels. It's the background to a lot of what goes on. As Jesus becomes more and more prominent, the Jewish leaders become more and more edgy. They realize they can't control Jesus. And they worry he's going to start attracting Rome's attention. They might lose their privileged status. That was one of the main reasons the Jewish ruling council decided to kill Jesus. Well, what does all this have to do with Smyrna? In the early days of the church, the Romans looked on Christianity as part of Judaism. As far as Rome could see, from a distance, it was just Jews squabbling among themselves over some religious stuff. And so, Christians weren't forced to worship Caesar. They came under the Jewish exemption. But, the more Christianity grew and spread, and particularly the more Jews became Christians, 
the more the Jewish leaders wanted to destroy the church. And so they began to tell the Romans Christianity did not fall under the umbrella of Judaism. It was its own separate thing. They began to tell the Romans it had nothing to do with God's promises to Abraham and nothing to do with God's promised Messiah. If Christians claimed those promises were fulfilled in their Jesus, then the Jews said they were wrong. The bottom line was the Jewish leaders disowned Christianity. That's what's going on at this period of time. And that is why Jesus says in the second half of verse 9, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The slander Jesus is talking about apparently is the Jewish claims that Christianity is a new thing. That it doesn't stand in continuity with the Old Testament people of God. That it's just popped up out of nowhere. But notice here, Jesus says the opposite is true. He says those who disown him may be physical descendants of Abraham, but they're not true descendants of Abraham. Those who truly stand in Abraham's line are those who put their faith in me, Jesus says. And so, those Jews who reject me are serving Satan, not God. They are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus had said that while he was on earth. He said it in John chapter 8, and here he repeats it again. And here's the key thing for us to see this morning. The result of this slander from the Jews was persecution for the Christians. They were no longer protected by the umbrella of Judaism. And the persecution came first in quite subtle ways. It came with regard to work. We're familiar, most of us, with the concept of trades unions. And at this time, they had something very similar. Trade guilds. Those were societies designed to help people who worked in the same trade. So there were guilds for metal workers and for fishermen and so on. Being a member of a guild was very helpful. It gave you contacts and it gave you opportunities. But being excluded from the guild could dry up your opportunities. For example, the Metal Workers Guild could make sure all the metalworking jobs went to members of the guild. If you couldn't get in the guild, it could be next to impossible to find work. And this was the point where the Christians in Smyrna faced a challenge. Which riches do you want most? Guild meetings usually involved offering incense to the emperor. It was a way of showing that members of that guild were loyal to the emperor. The emperor had nothing to fear from that guild. So if you were a Christian, you had to choose. 
Now, Christians were very keen to be good citizens, to pay their taxes, to show respect and honor to those in authority. But everybody knew the incense offered to Caesar was about more than honor and respect. It was worship. And so it seems the Christians in Smyrna have chosen their treasure. They have chosen the riches of fellowship with God over the riches they could have by agreeing to worship Caesar, to get into a guild. And they're living in poverty. Does this have any relevance for us? Are there subtle ways we might have to choose which riches we want most? Well, I'll give you just one example. Think for a moment about the term British values. It keeps appearing in the news. But what does it mean? The fact is, it could mean almost anything. And that's where the danger is. British values means whatever the people with power say it means. And recently, it has been made to mean promoting a homosexual lifestyle. You may have heard reports of how Ofsted have visited certain faith schools, not just Christian ones, but those of other faiths too, and pupils at those schools have been harassed. They've been harassed to try and find out, are those particular schools not simply respecting people who live a homosexual lifestyle, but are the schools actively promoting the lifestyle itself among the pupils? Now, in this particular case, the government has rushed to correct the approach Ofsted has been taking. But it does illustrate the point very well. The term British values in the wrong hands can be used to go after certain groups of people and close down opportunities for those people. As Christians, we believe strongly in showing respect to everyone. But we cannot promote anything the Bible calls sin. It's not hard to see how in the name of British values, Christians could begin to miss out on certain jobs. Like teaching, for example. They could be overlooked for promotion or even lose their jobs. Not for being lazy, not for being dishonest, but for refusing to go along with a certain definition of British values when that definition includes sin. These believers in Smyrna have had experience with Roman values. A good Roman citizen at this time was willing not only to pay taxes to Caesar, but to worship him as a god. When Roman values or British values conflict with obeying God, 
then God's people have to choose their treasure. Treasure in heaven or treasure here on earth. Not so long ago, a whole generation of Christians in Eastern Europe find themselves out of step with Soviet values. And for those Christians, choosing treasure in heaven meant they had no opportunity to go to university. It meant everything except the most lowest level jobs were closed off to them. Now, you and I might think we are nowhere close to facing those kind of tests. But we need to make our choice now. So we're ready if the test does come. For some of us, it might be closer than we think. I'm sure we'd all love to choose both. Heavenly riches and earthly riches. Fellowship with God and material comfort. But what if you can't have both? It seems that so far, the church in Smyrna has chosen well. But Jesus wants them to know there are even greater choices ahead of them. They have chosen well during the subtle persecution when the result was only earthly poverty. But how will they choose when the stakes go even higher? In verses 10 and 11, Jesus pushes the question further. He asks, which life do you want most? Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Notice Jesus says, some of you will face this. It's not going to be everyone. But everyone's got to be ready for it. Some will be put in prison. Some will be put to death. And this will last for ten days. Does Jesus mean a literal ten days? Possibly. But in the overall context of this particular book, it's more likely to mean a short but intense period of persecution. And the message from Jesus is, be faithful to me. Stay true to me. And I promise you'll be more blessed at the other end of the persecution than you are now. But how can Jesus say in the same sentence that some of them will die and that he'll give them life as their victor's crown? In verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life. Well, clearly, Jesus is talking about two different kinds of life. 
Just as earlier, he spoke about two kinds of riches. On the one hand, there's the life they are living at the moment. Eating, sleeping, walking around the city of Smyrna. They might lose that life if they stay faithful to Christ. They might be executed for their faith. As Christians today might be. More Christians have been killed for their faith in the last hundred years or so than all the previous years of the church put together. This particular issue has not disappeared. So the promise from Jesus is not, stay faithful to me and I will extend this life you have right now. No. The promise is, stay faithful and I'll give you life in all of its fullness. Everlasting life with me. That is the inheritance ahead of these believers. Jesus calls it a crown. And in verse 11 he says it means not being hurt at all by the second death. The New Testament tells us there are two deaths. Unless you and I are still alive when Jesus comes back, then we will all go through the first death. We will all die physically. We can't avoid that death. We might manage to escape serious illness, but the first death will get us all in the end. Some of us have been reminded of that as we attended two funerals in the past week. But the New Testament also tells us about a death we can avoid. The second death. That is an eternal conscious death. Away from God's presence in hell. And of those two deaths, it's the second one that should concern us the most. That is the one to be avoided at all costs. Don Carson says, 50 billion years from now, who's going to care about the first death? No one. It's only the second death that will matter then. And here Jesus says, if you're with me, you need not fear that second death. And so you need not fear the first death either. Now we know why Jesus began his message to Smyrna by reminding them in verse 8, he's the one who died and came to life again. He has conquered death. And we saw in the vision of chapter 1, because he has conquered death, he holds the keys of death and the grave. He has the power to save us from the second death or send us to it. It's in his hands. And his promise is he will save those who are with him. Who make him their greatest treasure. So Jesus asks his church in Smyrna and he asks his church today, which life do you want most? 
Is your treasure in the here and now? Are you most concerned to hold on to what you have now? Or do you place greater value on the life beyond this life? If we do, if that's where our treasure is, then we will stay faithful to Christ even to the point of death. We started with these words of Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot was a missionary who gave up this life for the sake of eternal life. He was killed while trying to take the gospel to the Auca Indians in Ecuador. But he'd made his choice long before he was speared to death by those Indians. He'd already written these words in his journal. Jim Elliot knew this life can offer us plenty. Riches, pleasure, power, applause. But it doesn't last. We can't keep it. So Jim Elliot chose the riches and life he could never lose. He didn't know he was going to die the way he did. None of us know what's around the corner for us. But he made his choice ahead of time. And that choice shaped all the little choices he made from day to day. The daily sacrifices he was willing to make. It shaped the direction his life was going. It determined the compromises he would not make day to day. And Jesus calls you and me to choose ahead of time. Let's pray. Father, we read these words of Jesus and we find no rebuke here. We find just a challenge to choose wisely, to see the greater riches and greater life Jesus offers us and then set our hearts on those treasures. And so, will you give us, each of us, clear vision? Whatever bright and shiny things this world dangles in front of us, whatever riches, whatever enticements, whatever promises of life this world holds out to us, we want the greater treasure that's in Christ. We want to be people ready to give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. So will you help us? Help us to win this particular battle in our hearts. Amen. Our final song gives us a chance to respond to what we've heard.